Lord, we thank you for your gift to us, the gift of your word, the gift of your son. And we thank you for the opportunity to give back to you, Lord. Even though we could never possibly give back to you in anything like the degree to which you have given us, nevertheless, we experience joy in giving. We thank you for your provision for this body. We thank you, Lord, that you would bring people to this body. We know that there are those out there, possibly even within the sound of my voice today, as I pray this prayer, whether they are streaming live or at some future point, and you might touch their heart and say, here is a place for you to connect because you have not been connected to the body of Christ. You have not yet given your life to me, or you have, but you haven't yet connected yourself to the body life of my life, and PCF is a place for you. If that's the case, Lord, then let them hear that from you today and be warmly welcomed into our midst, even online, because we are one in the Spirit. Now, as we turn to your word, Lord, we ask that you would speak through your word the glorious good news we so desperately need to hear and we so delightfully praise you for. Amen. Do you agree? Say amen. Say it loudly. Let it be heard wherever you are. I don't know where you might be. Maybe you're in your car pulled over by the side of the road. Maybe you're in a break room in your workplace and it's an appropriate environment for you to be able to listen to this. Most likely you're probably at home. Maybe you're in an office. But wherever you are, to whatever degree it's appropriate, give your robust attention to the message that's about to come to you and let your robust amen be spoken out at any time. I mentioned to you that you're about to hear one of the greatest sermons ever. And that's true because it was written by one of the greatest geniuses ever, inspired by the one who is the genius of all. That is to say, it was written by the Apostle Paul, an extraordinary individual of the early church, whose life story and testimony is one of the most amazing biographies the world has ever known. But even more importantly, and Paul would be the first one to say this, this sermon is special because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It is the living Word of God. Now, I'm going to do something that's been long my aspiration to do on a Sunday morning, but I don't think I've ever done it before. I am not going to essentially preach a sermon to you about the book of Romans. I am going to present to you the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. Now, you can follow along in your Bible, and I think it would be a good thing for you to have a Bible open. You know, we have the Bible text available to you there on the website. You can also have, obviously, a physical Bible, or maybe you have it on your phone. But I want to ask something. Are you listening? I want to ask that you not just read along with me. Now, I will make this caveat. You may be someone for whom that's really essential. Maybe your understanding of English is such, and this is not easy text. I will tell you that. There's some big words, some big concepts, some long strings of ideas. So it may be that it's essential for you to follow along. And if that's the case, I understand. So you do what's best for you. But for many of us, the most valuable way that we can receive this sermon right now is have the text available there so you can look down at points if you need to kind of cue in again, get anchored again, because the mind can wander, I know that. Or even more uh, practically, maybe there's one point where you go, now wait a minute, what was that? Let me underline that. But plan to come back to it, and we will. 
Because over the next four months or so, we are going to be studying the book of Romans together in these sermon times. I am going to preach in detail. In fact, next week, I'm going to preach on mostly on the very first sentence in the letter of Paul to the Romans, which is one of my favorite sentences in all of Scripture. But that's for next week. I'll be taking us, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit will be leading us, please God, and as God wills and God allows, through chapter by chapter the book of Romans over this coming uh, series of months into the spring and actually probably even into May. We're going to take a little break around Easter uh, for some uh, Easter-focused messages, but actually what you will find is they are very much cued to what we will have already been learning in Romans. So there's a lot of material you're going to hear today, and it can be a little bit challenging to track with. Don't worry about understanding and comprehending all of it. For some of you, it's very familiar material. Maybe it's not to you. In fact, maybe you're watching today and you really don't know the Bible at all and you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm up for this. You are. This work was written to be understood. But it does require an element of activated listening. And you know what? We're not very good at that in our modern world. We like to have distracted listening. I like what Pastor Ron did last week when he asked you to, to, to text a few people, and I did it too, but I'll tell you a secret. I texted him. <laughs> I don't know how helpful that was to him that I'm texting him while he was in the pulpit. But he, he said, text a few people and say, tune in to the sermon right now and then put your phone aside. Well, if there are things that you would be distracted by, tune out Instagram. For heaven's sakes, for another 45 minutes, you can be off of of Instagram or Facebook, unless you're streaming the service through Facebook, in which case, just focus in on this message. Now, it's up to you. I can't control it. But what I want to promise you is this. There is good news here. Are you ready for it? Couldn't you use that? But if you're going to receive it, you've got to really hear it. Not just with your ears, not even just with your mind, but your ears need to be open and your mind needs to be tuned in, but you need to receive it with your heart. Oh, you probably won't want to do what I'm asking for next. This is a holdover from when I was a preschool pastor. You don't have to do it. But when I was with those little kids, sometimes I would say to them during the ministry time, when I'd have a few minutes, and it's hard to wrangle. These were two-year-olds and three-year-olds. Can you imagine? Not my skill set, probably. But what I would say to them is, I want you to open your ears, and I'd have them unlock their ears. Now, put on your thinking cap. I know, it's so juvenile. But you know what? That action of just putting your hands on your head and saying, I'm tuning in. I'm, I'm stoking the coals of my mind. And then... Most important of all, I do ask you to do this. Put your hands over your heart and just open it. It's a physical expression of a spiritual desire. I want to hear. And it's important to be open. Because what's coming at you is not always easy to hear. What do people say? I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? Well, I guess there's two kinds of people in the world. The people who ask for the good news first and the people who ask for the bad news first. I'm a bad news first kind of guy. Make of that what you will. I always look at it as 
I'd rather get through whatever I have to get through in order to get to the good part than get my hopes up and then have them dashed. Well, Paul puts bad news first, too, in a way. I mean, he starts off with some good greetings. But when it comes down to laying out the good news of God, which is what gospel means, it means good news, quite literally in the Greek, euangelion, good news, it has to be predicated upon reality. Say that word, reality. The reality is things are bad. The reality is people die. The reality is people sin. The reality is people lie, people cheat, people hurt. People are hurt, people hurt others. The reality is you and I were divided from God and that's the worst news ever. But if you don't know it, that makes it even worse. Because if you don't know that you're divided from God, then you have no desire to be reunited with him. You have no sense of need to be at peace with him and so you have no hunger for the good news. So the bad news is necessary to be known in order for the good news to be shown and sown and grown like seed in soil, bringing forth fruit and life. Two more things before I get into these chapters. He's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles or Jews and Greeks, as it may say in your translation. There's really three uh, categories of people that are kind of considered in this treatise by Paul, this extraordinary demonstration of his understanding of the gospel. We'll talk next week about why Paul wrote and to whom he was writing, but it's enough for me to say right now, Paul has never visited the city of Rome, ancient Rome, when he's writing this letter, but he knows that there are Christians there. There are Gentile Christians, that means non-Jewish non-circumcised believers in Christ, even though Christ was and is the Jewish Messiah. And there were also Gentile, circumcised Jewish, excuse me, Jewish circumcised believers in the Christ who nevertheless, though we think of Judaism as a distinct belief system, these were Jews who believed in Jesus. There are Jews who believe in Jesus today too. It is not a contradiction in terms. It is in fact the fulfillment if you may allow me this bold statement, Paul himself, a Jew and a rabbinical Jew, a scholarly Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, himself affirmed that the fulfillment of Judaism is, of course, the Jewish Messiah, but it is a fulfillment available to everyone. He's going to be talking about those two categories, Jew and Gentile. But I want you to think also in terms of these three categories, which is there are people who do not know the Lord at all and have no interest in him. Paul's going to talk about that first. People in the world who are confused and given over to wrong ways. Chapter 1 is going to be looking at that. But in chapter 2, he's going to talk about religious people who don't think they are like that. And that could be like you and I. It doesn't have to just be Jews. He's talking about Jews because that's his context. But you and I need to contextualize it to our present moment. He's talking about us. He's talking about Christians who think we are saved because we know the right thing and we do the right thing. And he's going to say, wrong. People in the world have sinned, but you also have sinned. 
And then there's a third category of people that he's going to deal with, and that is people who are ready to receive the bad news, I am at a distance from God that I cannot cover, that I cannot fix. And he's going to give them, us, everyone that will receive the good news. God has already reached across that distance. So when he's talking about Jew and Gentile, think also about Christian and non-Christian because it applies in many ways. I want to present to you the letter of the Apostle Paul to the churches in Rome, the book of Romans. From Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart, cut apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed a son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Will you repeat that phrase? The righteousness of God. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written in the scriptures, the righteous will live by faith. Listen, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them 
Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. In other words, all of creation reflects there is a creator so that no one has an excuse for denying the reality of God. But although they knew God, Through what he created, they neither glorified him as God, nor even gave thanks to him. So their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, the lusts that they desired. He gave them freedom to fulfill what they desired. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God released them to their depraved minds so that they don't know what ought to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, Greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know in their heart God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice and teach them. This is life in the world, and it is death. But how about you, believers, Jews, Christians? You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment 
do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same thing, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. The word says God will repay each person according to what? According to what they have done. What have you done? What have I done? What have we done? To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, the Christian, then for the Gentiles. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the believer, for the Jew, the Christian, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Let me put parenthetically here this statement. That's why I don't want you to just hear what I'm saying today, but to receive it. Believe it and obey it. Indeed, when Gentiles, when non-believers, when worldly people who do not have the law do by nature the things that are required by the law, when they show kindness or when they seek righteousness, then they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts and their consciences also bear witness. Their thoughts sometimes accuse them. Other times they're defending themselves. All of it reflects the reality that they know the truth of the law of God in their heart. And so this judgment will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares he will do. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a believer, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others all these things, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal things, money, time? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
even if only in your mind? For Jesus said that if we have lust in our mind and in our heart, we have as good as done that deed. You who abhor idols and idolatry, do you rob temples? Or how about your workplace? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by, in your secret life, breaking the law? Maybe even in your public life. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value. By the way, Paul is going to talk here and several times about this covenant of circumcision. It is the the removal of foreskin from the male, but it is a covenant with all the people of Israel. And it was a sign, a signatory sign that said, these people are marked as mine. And it had come to be seen as the measure of righteousness. If somebody was circumcised in that private place that was the source of life, then they said, I am right with God. Paul says here, there is some value to that if it is in fact a sign that you are observing the law in your life. But if you're breaking the law, then you may as well not have been circumcised because you've become just like one who wasn't part of that covenant. So then, if those who are not circumcised do actually keep the law's requirements at some point, then won't they be regarded just like they were circumcised? And the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law is the one who will turn and condemn you, even though you have the written code, you have God's word, the scriptures, and circumcision, but you're still a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew, is not a believer, is not a Christian who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a believer, is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart. Ah, that opening, that revealing, taking away the covering of flesh and revealing the point of life. And that is done by the Spirit not by the written code. Such a person's praise doesn't come from other people, but from God. Do you see what Paul did there? He said, you'll be judged by righteous people who weren't even part of the faithful, but they said, at least we did what we were supposed to, you hypocrite. But if you are righteous, even if no one praises you, God will. Because it's God who has made you righteous. Well, if that's the case, then hey, What advantage then is there in being a Jew or a Christian for that matter? And what value is there in circumcision? Much, in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The Bible begins in the Hebrew Bible. The Old Testament is the first testament and it is still the testimony of God. It is the testament that the New Testament is born out of. The Jews have the words of God. What if some of them were unfaithful, though? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you, God, may be proved right when you speak and prevail, God, when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, well, what shall we say? God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument here. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue. 
If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory by, by uh, opposition, why am I still condemned as a sinner? In fact, why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, well, let's do evil, and that way good will result. Their condemnation is just. Here Paul is saying, anyone who rejects that argument is right to do so, and anyone who makes that argument is wrong to make it. What should we conclude then? Do we have any advantage just because of being circumcised or Jewish? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who even seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Okay, you still with me here? Wake up if you went to sleep out there somewhere. Do you hear what Paul is saying? The law cannot be fulfilled by you. You don't fulfill the law. But what the law shows you is how wrong you are. And you can't make yourself right by doing it because you can't do it. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. All the scriptures, in other words. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's the good news. The bad news is you're wrong and so wrong you can't make yourself right. The good news is you don't have to. The one who is right is making you right in him. And there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So what, what are we possibly going to boast about? Where could boasting be? It is excluded. Get rid of any boasting. 
Because of what? Law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, by faith, we fulfill the law. Now look, what do we say about Abraham? For the Jews, Abraham is the model of the circumcised covenant holder. Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. What did he discover about this that I am preaching to you? If, in fact, Abraham, back in the book of Genesis, was justified by works, well, then he had something he could boast about. I'm justified by my works. But he couldn't make that boast before God because God knows better. What does the scripture say then? It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him. His faith, his belief was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift. If you draw a salary or you have an hourly wage, that's not a gift. It's an obligation. But to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, what a thing. Their faith is credited as righteousness. Do you understand? To the one who believes that God will make you righteous, your belief is actually how his righteousness comes to you. David says the same thing when he's writing of the Psalms, when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Blessed are you if you believe that in Jesus Christ your sins, though they are many like mine, are forgiven. Is this blessedness only for the circumcision or also for those that are uncircumcised? Look at Abraham. We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Okay, under what circumstances was it credited? When? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after. It was before he was circumcised. And he received circumcision, in fact, as a sign, as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then... Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised. All those Gentiles who simply will believe that God is ready to forgive if they put their trust in him. But he is also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised but who are also following in the same footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had walked in before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. 
For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath. If you're depending on the law, you're failing the law, and you're going to suffer wrath. And what about if there was no law then? Well, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, there's no promise, if the promise is to be redeemed from transgression. So the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all. As it is written, the Lord said to him, I have made you, Abraham, a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. He became a harvest. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his face, faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. The promise to him and to his wife was that they would have an heir, that she would give birth to his child. But he was about 100 years old. So how good is that promise? And he also saw that Sarah's womb was dead because she was about 90 years old. What 90-year-old woman is going to give birth to a child? But he didn't waver, nevertheless. Regarding the promise of God, Abraham held on to faith and belief and gave glory to God as his faith was strengthened, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do whatever he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written just for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will also credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. You see the parallel? It's an impossibility, but not for God. All things are possible with God, and all things will be possible for the one who believes. Jesus Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised back to life for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what that means? An impossible peace has been provided for us through Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And as Paul will write later, having done all, we continue to stand in that faith. It makes us strong in the spiritual assault we face. We boast nothing in ourselves, but rather in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but listen now, we also glory in our sufferings. We should, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, which is desperately lacking in our world today. And character produces hope. Are you without hope? You need character. How can you have character? 
you need to persevere. How can you persevere? God will bring you trials. How can you face those trials? In the glory of the faith of his promise. Our hope does not put us to shame. We will not be disappointed by hoping in God because God's love has already been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see the Trinity in this message. We'll talk more about it in PSOM today. The Holy Spirit is himself God. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though, for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since now we have been justified by his blood. What a precious commodity. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved all the way through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death came through sin, I'm talking about Adam and his disobedience, in this way, death came to all people. Everybody sins. Everybody dies. To be sure, sin was in the world before this law was given. Before this word was written, Sin was in the world. But sin is not charged against anyone's account legally where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, like Adam did, who is the pattern of the one to come. Paul is saying here, even if there was no legal penalty because the word of God had not yet been given, the reality of the effect of sin, which is death, was still at work in the world. But notice that he says it's only at work until the time of Moses because then the law came and the law provided a way of life, but no one could make that way of life, no one could achieve it, no one could enter into it except by faith. But Paul is also making the point the gift is greater than the debt. The gift is not like the trespass. If the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The gift he's talking about here is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not just life in Christ, but fullness of his life. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin, just one, and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many, many trespasses and yet brought justification. And justification is greater than condemnation. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act 
Jesus dying on the cross resulted in justification and life available for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. I'll talk more about this in weeks to come, but I think what Paul is saying here is the law was brought in so we could see the bad news and see how fully bad it is so that we would need and receive the good news of Christ. So that just as the sin increased, grace increased all the more. Sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace can increase? If, if, if sin increases and grace abounds all the more, maybe we should sin the more. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. They don't keep sinning. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. It's appointed to every man to die once. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once, but not just for himself, for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, you and I can count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. How can you do this? Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself, body, soul, and spirit, mind, heart, word, and deed, action, element, and every member. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law. If you continue under the law, then you continue as a slave to sin and the law judges you. But if you are under grace, why not become a slave to grace? What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace? Is that what grace is for? Not at all, by no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you become slaves of the one that you obey. Whoever you obey, that is your master. 
Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, no way around it, or enslave yourself to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And the Spirit of God will make you obedient. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life for them, not maybe so much for us, but we'll talk about that. Because you need those kinds of examples because of human limitations. So just like you used to offer yourselves as, as slaves to impurity, you used to work and labor to make money out of things that were wrong in ever-increasing wickedness, now you offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. You give yourself your time, your energy, your attention to those things which lead to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. That's the people back in Romans 1. God gave them up. They were free, free to die. But they were free, and they were bound, bound to sin, bound to death. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you did, that you thought you enjoyed? All that drinking and carousing, all that lying and cheating. And now you're ashamed of those things, as we ought to be, because those things just lead to death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And the benefit you reap leads to real holiness. And the result is real and everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you earn. But the gift of God that you could never earn is the grace gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It was my intention to go all the way through chapter 8, but I'm going to conclude here because... It's taken me about that much time to get to this point as we have available. And I think this is a good place to stop in any case for now because it comes to the conclusion of this glorious portion of the message. And I hope you will agree with me. This is a profoundly purposeful expression of the good news of God. So many of the statements that I've made in the last 35, 40 minutes of preaching these first six chapters of Romans have been familiar to many of us. But my hope and prayer and my sense of prompting and purpose from the Lord was that they would be contextualized for you in a fresh way by hearing them together, aggregated in this full message. In the weeks ahead, we will continue further and as I mentioned, I will not only be preaching out of Romans, but also preaching into it. That is to say, let me be very clear, not trying to read anything into it, but trying to dive deeper into it, delve deeper into it, and to excavate more for you and I the present applications of this eternal message. But for today, let me say, the message of the gospel has come to you again today. Maybe it's the first time you've really heard it, Maybe you've heard it many times, but you haven't really received it. Maybe you've received it, but you haven't lately been believing it. Maybe you've received it, you believe it, and today the Lord has revived in you or extended in you an even greater understanding of this glorious good news. Wherever you're at, the message is for you because it applies to all of us 
because all have sinned and gone astray. I'm a sinner like you. Doesn't mean that I make habit of sin. Doesn't mean that I never struggle with sin. It means that I have a sin nature that I cannot overcome on my own. And if I were left to that, I would be without hope. I would face wrath and everlasting death. But God has not left me or you to that. Instead, he died for us to save us. Jesus wants to reach you today with the word of life. Will you let him? You need to be willing to hear whatever it is that he has to say that's bad news in your life. If there's something that's taking you away from the truth, if there's a legalistic tendency by which you're trying to fulfill everything of the scriptures, but you're trying to do it in your own power, he wants to free you from that law and establish you in his grace. If you're living according to the law of your own leisure and lust, if you're living according to the law of the world around you, and you've rejected the things of God, he wants to free you from those lies and enslavement to sin. Some of what we've talked about today has to do with a very controversial subject that we'll be talking about more in weeks to come, which is human sexuality, even sexual orientation. Maybe some of what you heard offended you today. Friend, all I can say is, if the word of God offends you, how can the life of God help you? Because the life is in the word. God's word does not come to offend you. And in fact, it isn't you that is offended. It's sin in you. So let his word put that sin to death so that you wouldn't die with it, but you would be brought to life. I know it's hard. I know it's not easy. And I can tell you, we all have our struggles with things that God says to us that we find very difficult to receive and believe. And we're afraid about what it means for us or what people might think about us. But care no more for those things. Care for what God thinks of you, what God offers you, what God wants for you. Look for God's purpose and let everything else be left aside. Because in the purpose of God is life, forgiveness, and hope everlasting. Pray with me now, won't you? Lord, we need you to forgive us of our sins, and you already have. But once again today, we make fresh confession that we have sins even this week that we need to ask your forgiveness for. Maybe there's people we need to repent to. Maybe it's simply us coming on our knees before you and saying, you already know, Lord, what's in my heart, the things I've said, things I've done, what I've looked at, the way I've treated people, what I haven't done, what I failed to do, what I neglected, whatever it might be. Lord, thank you that your forgiveness comes to me today, to each one of us. And Lord, let each one of us be entrusted into you Let's pray right now that our lives would belong to God. Will you say this prayer after me? Lord Jesus Christ, I believe you free me from sin. Deliver me out of the life of the flesh and fill me with the life of your spirit. Show me the truth of your word and guide me by the light of your love. Connect me to the life of your body and use me 
to give testimony to the world of your good news. I trust in you for salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.